Well, hello, how are we? Welcome back to Here's Looking at You Film, a podcast for the vintage cinephile with modern sensibilities. I'm your host, Nikki, and we have to jump in ASAP because this movie that we're covering today is a lot, okay? I had to pause and stop watching multiple times because I kept getting so mad. This movie could have been called Red Flags because there are so many, but today we're covering a 1944 film that won Ingrid Bergman an Academy Award for Best Leading Actress, George Cukor's Gaslight. Now you may be thinking, Gaslight? Like, Gaslight? Gaslight? You would be correct. In 1944, a psychological thriller was released that was horrifying simply because of the mental torture released on this woman by a man that was supposed to love her, okay? The original was released in 1940, and it was actually based on a play, but didn't have nearly as large of a budget or cast appeal as this version did. Gaslight was a noun until this film was made, when it became a psychological verb used to describe being mentally manipulated in a way that makes a person begin begin to discredit their own logic and thoughts. Now, as we go through this film, just keep in mind that it's set in like 1910, so women were very submissive to their husbands and often believed that their husbands had their best interest in mind. We're very quickly going to go through our main cast list so that you know what names you're going to be looking for. We have Charles Boyer as Gregory Anton, Ingrid Bergman as Paula Alquist, Paula Anton later on, Joseph Cotton as Brian Cameron, uh, Dame May Whitty as Miss Bessie Thwaites, which we will, you'll hear a lot about her, um, Angela Lansbury as Nancy Oliver, you know, Miss Murder, she wrote herself, but when she was much younger and she was a baddie, and Paula Everest as Elizabeth Tompkins. There's a number of other people that are in the film, but those are the main names that you're going to hear. And now that we have our players, we can press play. So our opening credits begin with this beautiful opera singing that's suddenly interrupted by jarring horror music. The credits roll in front of this really vintage-looking wallpaper, um, so I guess it would have been appropriate wallpaper for the time, but it's a very short credit sequence, like nothing, no images or anything to really talk about. Fade in on a dark street in London where a bunch of people are gathered in front of a house, so you know something went down, and there's a shot of a newspaper that says there's a strangler still at large. We see Paula being rushed out of the house into a carriage, which at the time was like their cab. And there's a man in there that's telling her that now that her aunt, who is famous opera singer Alice Alquist, is gone, she'll be going to Italy to study under the opera teacher that taught her aunt. Now, as an adult in Italy, about 10 years later, we find her practicing with her instructor, Signor Guardi, who, after hearing her sing during this practice session, suggests that she doesn't understand the pain of what she's singing about. She flat out asks him if she just sucks at singing, and he tells her that she was much better when she first got there, and she was a little bit more sad. So he asks her if maybe she might have met someone and is in love. She admits that she is, and she feels totally consumed by this love. So Senor Guardi tells her, girl, forget opera singing for a while. Just go be happy. Experience life. I will be here, or opera singing will be here when you get back. She leaves, and she is immediately met outside by her boo, Gregory Anton. So from now on, if I ever talk about him talking, just picture everything that he says with the most 
Pepe Le Pew French accent that you can think of, okay? And he's trying to marry her after knowing her for two weeks. And she is head over heels in love with this man. She's never been around like other men like this before. And so she is smitten. She knows that two weeks is fast though. So she tells him that she wants to go to Lake Como for a week by herself just to think about things now that she's done with her opera singing for a while. He agrees to let her go and they have a little makeout session before she goes to leave. Now on the train to the lake, Paula is sitting next to this elderly woman who starts getting really loud and live over this book she's reading like it's a TV show. Um, but they didn't have TV at the time, so it makes sense. She and this woman, Mrs. Thwaites, begin talking. And the lady reveals that she's actually from the exact neighborhood that Paula and her aunt lived in, Thornton Square. And this lady knows all the tea. She mentions that there was a murder there a year before she'd moved there. And she's been living there for about nine years. And she can see the room that it happened in from her window. So Paula tells this lady that she's not familiar with what happened, but she starts packing her stuff to get off this train quick, fast, and in a hurry as her stop approaches because she doesn't want to talk about it. And the train barely stops before Paula steps off of it. Just as this lady is offering her address in case Paula is ever in her area in Thornton Square, guess who walks up? Greg. He couldn't even let sis have a week to herself. But of course, she is so in love and she's so happy to see him and they start kissing right as the train is driving off. So they appear to be in a dipped off little love shack, which would have been a weird place for Paula to have been in by herself, but fine, whatever. And they start talking about where they'd like to settle after their honeymoon because clearly now they know they're going to get married. She's talking about Paris and he casually mentions how he's been thinking about settling in London. Perhaps like a little house in a square. I don't know. And so she brings up the house that Aunt Alice had left her. But she hasn't been there since she left years ago. And she says she's been scared to face that house before. But since she met Greg, she's so in love that she can face anything so they can move into this house. I don't know if you can hear me rolling my eyes, but I am. Now, once they get to the Thornton Square house, first off, Miss Thwaites shows up right away. So now they live right by her nosy ass. She knows everything that's going on everywhere. Now they get into the house and Greg is looking around like it's regular ass real estate, just pointing out where the dining room, the kitchen, all those things are, while Paula is literally reliving her childhood as well as the murder of her aunt in her head. And as she's looking around, kind of starts freaking out, thinking about things, Greg suggests that they just Hide everything that reminds her of her aunt in the attic upstairs. No big deal. He also suggests moving the piano, but Paula wanted to keep it down there. And Paula mentioned that they can start to have people and parties at the house, just as her aunt did before. Greg seems kind of put off by that and simply tells her like, oh, we can have people here later. I want to have like our honeymoon period though, but we can have people here later. She looks through her aunt's display case and she starts talking about this glove that didn't have a match and her aunt always claimed to give the other one to like a, a, a great admirer, but her aunt would never say who the admirer was. So at the piano, Greg starts to play this strangely familiar song to Paula, which was her aunt's most famous encore song. And she's looking through some of the music books and a note from someone named Sergis Bauer dated from two days before the murder, falls out of this book. 
and she mentions it to Gregory, he has an angry outburst, snatches the note from her, tells her to give it to him. And when she asks him why the hell he freaked out like that, he's like, oh, I'm just upset for you and how sad this must all be for you. And like, we can't be happy together if you're still sad about this murder and all this stuff that happened. So you have to just forget about your aunt and everything that happened. And of course, Paula doesn't want to forget her aunt. She just wants to forget what happened to her and the trauma behind that. Mrs. Thwaites pops up, nosy, one day and starts trying to talk to the cook while she's walking back home about what's going on in the house. And the cook says that Paula and Greg are about to go out for the first time in quite a while because they, hey, they literally have not left the house together since they moved in. Meanwhile, in the house, Greg is hiring a new housemaid, Nancy. That's Angela Lansbury. And Greg is telling her that Paula is kind of high strung, needs a lot. She's all over the place. So you have to be kind of like careful with her. And Nancy is cool with it, but she is clearly hot in the pants to flirt with any man she meets including Gregory, but he's kind of like not paying her any mind and just letting her do her little flirty thing. Now, Paula and Greg are getting ready to go out for the first time in, together in three months, and they're talking when Greg subtly and very randomly just mentions how Paula has a habit of losing things, forgetting things, and she doesn't feel like that's true, but he says, oh, it's just little stuff you wouldn't even notice and it's not even a big deal. He decides also that now is a good time to give her a brooch that's been passed down through the women in his family. But just as she's trying to put it on because she's so honored to have it and she wants to keep it and cherish it always, he says that the latch on it is weak and he wants to have it fixed. So he tells her to just put it in her purse. He puts it in her purse for her and she sees him put it in the purse. So they go to the Tower of London and while she's there, you know how like you have something that you're really like excited about in your bag and you just want to check it and look at it and make sure it's still there. So she starts doing that with the brooch. She's looking in the purse for her brooch and it's not there. She goes over to the side to rummage through her purse for it. It's not, not there. And Gregory comes over to check on her and she pretends that everything's fine and she just needs some air. So they get outside and they're walking and this man is there with his niece and nephew and he is stopped in his tracks when he sees Paula. He takes off his hat as a gesture of respect and bows when they pass and Paula offers him like a little subtle friendly smile. She hasn't been out of the house in three months so she sees a person who like bows at her like that and she's like oh thank you so much and kind of just smiles at him. The man's niece refers to him as Brian and says it looks like he's seen a ghost and he said he feels like he has. Meanwhile, Greg, while they're walking, is asking Paula if she knows him because she smiled at him. And of course, she was just being polite, but he's basically accusing her of flirting. And he tells her he wants to see the crown jewels in the building up ahead because she had said she wanted to go home. And he's like, oh, I want to see the jewels. And she kind of jokingly asks him how he knows where the crown jewels are if he's never been to London before, because this is supposedly his first time. He gets super serious and says that the tour guide inside had mentioned it and that she's being forgetful and suspicious now. 
And she's just trying to figure her life out right now. So they go in to see the jewels. And this man looks mesmerized with these jewels. Like he's about to cry looking at them. He's so happy. He's got a glimmer in his eye. We never see him look at Paula like that. Not even once. So she's just uncomfortable. And she asks if they can go home again. He agrees. Brian, our boy, is spying on them from the other side and watches them leave. And Greg definitely notices Brian watching them leave. Now at home, Elizabeth is showing Nancy the ropes of the house and Nancy asks about the boarded up top floor. No one can go in or out. And that's where all of Alice's things are. Now previously, Nancy had also asked Elizabeth what was wrong with Paula because she seemed fine. And Elizabeth said, I'm not sure. She does seem fine, but the master doesn't let her think she is. So there's something there, right? Once Paula and Greg get home, she's trying to go upstairs to dump her purse discreetly when Greg asks to have the brooch so he can take it to get repaired. She's forced to admit that she lost it. She dumps her purse on the stairs, searching for it, no luck. He tries to comfort her by telling her that it wasn't expensive, but of course she wants to wear her booze family brooch. That's like super official. That's like almost like a wedding ring, obviously. But now my girl is questioning herself because she can't understand how she could have lost it because she never opened her bag when they were out. They both agree that she must just be tired and she just needs to lay down. And he goes and heads out to an office space that he's rented out to write music in that, may I mention, Paula has never seen or been to. I'm rolling my eyes again, but Paula goes to lay down while he goes out to this office space. Now, as Nancy is helping her prepare for bed, Paula notices that the gas lamps in the room appear to dim. Now, in case you're not up on game, let me explain how gas lamps work. And this is where the name of the movie Gaslight comes from. So you had gas distributed through the house. And if you had a lamp lit that was using that gas and someone turned on another, another thing in the house that also used gas, like the oven or another lamp, you would see the lamp that you were looking at dim because the gas was being redistributed to another source. You see what I'm saying? So she sees this lamp dim, but Nancy says that Elizabeth is asleep. And no one else is in the house, so there's no other way that it could be redistributed to another source. Once Nancy leaves and Paula goes to lay down, she can hear footsteps above her head. But remember that the attic above her is sealed off and no one can get in. The only thing up there are her dead aunt's things. Now we cut to the next scene and Brian is standing outside of the ancient house, just kind of like staring at it and... He doesn't notice nosy-ass Miss Thwaites on the side feeding the birds. She just starts talking to him like they know each other, telling him that nobody ever sees Paula. That's definitely the house where the murder happened. Now, she says they see Greg coming and going sometimes, but never Paula. Suddenly, Brian sees Paula emerge. She walks towards the road. And then she walks back and knocks on her own door. Nancy answers and notes that she didn't even know that Paula had left. Paula says she thinks it may rain, so she wants to grab an umbrella. Nancy asks, well, where should I tell sir you went if he asks? She says, well, just tell him I went for a walk. Nancy says, but where will I tell him you went, you know? Paula looks at her, like stutters a little bit, and she's like, well, t just tell... Uh, t tell then she just walks back in the house and goes upstairs. 
Miss Twaits was like, see, that's all she does. She comes out, she stands there for a second, and then she ends up going back in. Never goes anywhere. Miss Twaits says she's even tried to get some info from Nancy, but she won't talk to her. She only flirts with the cops over there, and she's she even says she would probably talk to me if I wore trousers. And while Miss Twaits is talking and doing her little thing, Brian dips and goes back to work. Where does Brian work, you may ask? The Scotland Yard, bruv. My man's Brian Cameron is a detective at the Scotland Yard. His boss has been telling him that the Alice Alquist case was closed years ago, but Brian has been obsessed with it because he was in love with Alice as a young kid. And when he saw Paula, who looks just like Alice, and saw that she had moved into this house but was never coming out of it, he thought it was mad weird, which is why he's kind of been creeping around there. His boss said that even though the jewels weren't recovered, they didn't have any suspects. But Brian hadn't seen anything in case files about jewels anywhere. We didn't know anything about jewels. His boss tells him Alice had been given some crown jewels from another country by this like man, but they'd never been recovered. And there was no report of anybody trying to sell them because if you tried to sell crown jewels, obviously people would find out about it, especially after a murder like that. On the way out, Cameron stops one of the cops stationed in one of the like worst areas of London and tells them that, that he's going to have him moved to patrol over in the square where Paula lives. But after he checks to make sure that this guy is single. Okay, now we're back at the house. If you don't already want to punch Greg in the face, I promise you will in a minute. Just wait. Greg is asleep in an armchair and Paula's kind of tiptoeing around trying not to wake him up. And she sits down by the fire trying to warm herself up and she accidentally hits the poker by the fire and she wakes him up. She immediately starts apologizing and he hits her with, no, since you already woke me up and you seem to be cold, call the maid up to put more coal on the fire. And Paula's like, I can put coal on the fire. And he gets mad and basically tells her like, well, we hired servants to do this so that they can serve us. So call them up here. And she's like, I just think that we should give them their own time. Like we should care about our servants a little bit more. So, but he makes her ring for the servants. Nancy comes up there and asks Greg what he needs. And he's like, oh no, I didn't call for you. Paula called for you. Paula, why'd you call her? So Paula kind of just looks away from them because she's kind of uncomfortable, but upset. She's got a lot of feelings going on and she just asks for more coal on the fire, but clearly she's uncomfortable. Then Craig starts telling Nancy how pretty she looks with her makeup on because Nancy's going out later that night. And she tells Nancy that she should give Paula some tips on her makeup so she don't look so drabby. Like, for real, Greg? Get the shit slapped out of you in 2020. Come on up here to 2021. Get the shit slapped out of you if you want to. Don't don't ever think about doing that shit now. Wow. Okay, I'm back. Anyway, so Nancy leaves and Paula's like, like how do you how can you talk to her like that? And he's like, oh, it seemed like you wanted to treat the service like equals. Isn't that what you said? So I was just playing her with her like she's an equal, you know? Like, hmm. And Paula tells Greg that she can tell that Nancy doesn't like her. And she's like, you do that in front of her. And like, she doesn't like me. And she, you're just egging her on. And Greg is like, 
Oh, you think she doesn't like you for real? Or are you just imagining things again? You're talking about how she looks at you, and that kind of sounds crazy. You really think she doesn't like you, Paula? Really? And he's making her look him in the eye, and he's like, Paula, she really doesn't like you? And she's on the brink of tears. So she just says, no, Gregory, I don't really think that. And because she doesn't want to have the conversation anymore, obviously. Nancy comes back in and tells them that Mrs. Thwaites is downstairs with her nephew and wants to see Paula. Gregory immediately says that Paula's not well. She can't see anyone. Paula tries to mention that they really haven't seen anyone and Miss Thwaites has been so nice to them. So she'd like to see her. And Greg literally yells, I do not want anyone over this house. And he quickly tries to calm down and pull it back and say that Miss Quates was bold to bring her nephew. And if you let her in once, she'll always want to come back. But Paul is clearly thrown off. And once Nancy leaves the room, Paula asks why she couldn't see them. And Greg says, oh, I thought you were just being polite. And if you really wanted to see them, you should get over your fear of the servants and just ask them to bring the guests up. I just thought I was helping you out. Y'all, at this point in the movie, I was having to pause it every five minutes because I was literally so mad. I was itching. Nancy tells the guests that Paula isn't well, and we find out that the nephew is actually Brian pulling a sneaky detective move. And of course, Miss Thwaites was just happy to be involved with whatever was going on, so she went along with it. Upstairs, Paula's wondering why they can't have guests, and Greg, while he's playing the piano, says that they wouldn't have any time anyway because she needs to go get ready to go out that evening. She asked Gregory if she'd forgotten that he told her that they were going somewhere. And you can kind of see her visibly struggling to figure out if this is another thing that she forgot. Gregory just plays the piano and waits about 15 seconds not saying anything before he finally puts her at ease and tells her that this is a surprise that he planned for her. She gets super giddy. She's kissing on him, hugging on him, and she starts dancing and twirling with the piano as he's playing because she's so happy, almost like a little girl. All of a sudden, he stops playing and starts staring angrily at the wall. Now, Paul is confused, and he just tells her if she, quote unquote, puts it back, he won't be mad. She has no idea what he's talking about until he gestures to an empty spot on the wall where there's a small painting that's missing. And she tells him, like, I haven't moved a painting. And he says, oh, well, if you didn't do it, then one of the help must have done it, right? And she call, he calls Nancy and Elizabeth up one by one and asks them personally if they had any reason to move the painting, basically embarrassing Paula and making her sit there even when she tries to leave the room. After that whole embarrassment, he tells Paula, go get the painting. You know where it is. So she walks over to a statue and she pulls the painting from behind it. And she says, the only reason I know where it is is because the other two times that the painting was taken off the wall, this is where it is, but I'm not doing this. And she swears she had nothing to do with it, but he's like, oh yeah, like, of course you didn't. But now, of course, they can't go out, right? Because Paul is sick, right? So the plans that she was so excited about that made her forget about not having guests got canceled, right? And of course, Gregory's leaving to go to his quote unquote office, even though Paula is literally begging him to stay with her for the night. She even says, look, 
If I am losing things and forgetting things and taking pictures down that mean nothing to me and generally going crazy, you have to be gentle with me, Gregory. And she begs him to take her into his arms. And he just says he hopes she's better in the morning. He goes down to get ready to leave, but not before engaging in a little flirty conversation with Nancy. She says outright, oh, she's getting worse, isn't she? Because this is right after the whole painting ordeal. But he tells her not to refer to Paula as, quote unquote, she. I think she's supposed to call her mistress. Anyway, she mentions that she's going dancing and Greg tells her that she'll need to watch out for forward men. Nancy says, I can take care of myself when I want to. Okay, girl. Then Greg's like, oh, you know, it strikes me that you're not really the kind of girl your mistress should have as a housemaid. And she says, well, she's not the only one in the house, is she? And gets right up on this man, almost chest to chest. Sis is beep beep. The oven is hot and ready. And he gives her a little flirty look, doesn't even say anything. But then he dips. He walks down the road like normal, but then he dips off into a little hallway and we lose sight of him. Meanwhile, Paula's at home freaking out again because gas lights are doing their thing and she can hear the footsteps going off above her head. Now, the Dalroys, a fancy couple in town, are having a concert in their home and a reception afterwards. And they've invited the whole town, including Brian. On the night of the event, he finds out that Lady Dalroy has sat him next to this lady, Miss Pritchard, who Brian says has adenoids, which I think just means that she breathes through her mouth. But Lady Dalroy is basically trying to hook him up because he's a single man. Brian asks if he can sit next to the Antons instead. And at first she says yes, but then she says, oh no, Greg sent this note saying that Paul is ill and they can't go. And he just she just kind of gives him the note and says, you can read it if you want to. Now, Paula at the house is dressed to go to this reception. She goes in to tell Greg that she wants to go. He tells her, oh, I sent a note saying that you were ill, so we can't go. But she obviously feels okay, and she wants to go because Lady Dalroy was nice to her when she was a child, and she wants to go out and see people for once. Greg says, if you want to go, you're going to have to go by yourself. And she's like, okay, bye. So now Greg's jaw is in the basement because he thought she wasn't going to go. So he runs out and he's like, girl, I didn't even know this party was that important to you. Let me go change. Of course, you're not going by yourself, girl. You thought I was going to let you go by yourself. No. So now she's like kind of confused, but also mad hype because her and her boo are actually going to go out somewhere and do a thing. And she goes down. She calls Nancy to get a taxi. And Nancy is apparently vexed because either she was planning to spend the night in with him or she was supposed to go out and she can't go out if they're out. I'm not exactly sure, but she was like obviously pretty pissed off about it. And she was mad because um, Gregory didn't tell her what was going on because apparently they have a very like verbal um, relationship where he talks to her about things. But Paula don't like Nancy anyway, clearly. So she's like, um, me and my man are going out by, but just like in her face. And like, and she didn't say that, but her face said that, you know. But while Greg is getting ready, you can tell he came up with a little plan for something that he going to do while they out. 
The Antons walk into the event and everyone is surprised but excited to see them, especially Brian, of course. Paula greets Lady Dalroy and she's super gorgeous, classy, everything's going okay. They sit down, they're listening to the show. Brian's kind of watching them from the seat that he's in behind them. Greg grabs the chain for his pocket watch to take it out and check the time, but the pocket watch is not on the chain. He taps Paula and silently kind of gestures to the chain and then says, my watch is gone. And she looks over at him in horror because she knows what he is suggesting, that she took it. She starts to protest, but someone turns around and tells her to be quiet. Greg gestures for her purse and she gives it to him. And of course, he finds the watch inside and she starts having a fit, a full on fit, like whimpering and jerking around because she's convinced that she's lost it. Now, everyone's looking at them. Greg has to escort her out and he tells Lady Jalroy that he thought that she was good enough to be out, but clearly she's not. They get home and Greg is going off on her, basically saying that she embarrassed both of them. She's like, you think I'm going crazy, don't you? You've been trying to convince me that I'm crazy since the day with the brooch. No, wait, it was before that. It was the day with the letter. He's like, what letter? She's like, the one from Sergis Bauer. He's like, no, there was never a letter. You just started freaking out over nothing. But I thought you were just upset about your aunt, so I let it go. But I ain't know then what I know now, especially about your mom being crazy. Now, her mom died shortly after she was born, so she knows very little about her. So she's like, excuse me, come again. What? No, she wasn't. And he's like, yep, she was found out from her doctor. She was hearing shit just like you and died in an asylum with no brain. So then he's like, oh, you wanted to go to that party because that dude who bowed to you that one day was there. How do you know him? So now he's like jumping around over the place, all over the place. She keeps saying she doesn't know this man, obviously. And he snaps asking, why you keep lying to me? And she's like, I never lied to you. And he's like, nah, you not lying. It's worse. You just forget, just like you forget everything else. You know what? I need to involve people who know how to deal with stuff like this. We're going to have visitors soon. And Paul is like, a doctor? And he's like, yeah, two. I believe two is the required number. Which I think means like, you know, like if one doctor comes, they're just coming to check on her. But if two people come, then they're coming to put her in one of those like straight jackets to cart her off because you need two people to put them in there. So now she's just sitting there helpless and confused because she really thinks she's going crazy. And he leaves for the night, of course. Now outside, Brian's been watching the house and he sees Greg walking down the road. And as Greg's heading to his little dip off spot, he runs into Constable Williams and they greet each other really quick in passing. Now, a few minutes later, the constable and the Brian link around the corner and they agree that neither one of them saw where Greg went. And it was weird that like he didn't keep walking down the road or turn down a corner or anything like that. They just saw him dip off and they realized that he probably went into the alleyway into one of the apartments. But num apartment number five is the only one that's empty and the Antons live in apartment number nine. So none of this makes sense to either one of them. 
at home, Paula is hearing the things and seeing the lights go dim again, and she's losing it for real now. She starts screaming for Elizabeth like she's being murdered. But when Elizabeth gets up there, she's just like, I just want you to help me. I'm so tired because she still has on her clothes from the party, and she's trying to get ready for bed. She's all over the place. So she asked Elizabeth then about the gas and if she had turned on anything in the house. And Elizabeth just kind of tries to soothe her by saying like the gas might just redistribute on its own because the house is big and that's why the lights might dim. And then Paula asks Elizabeth to listen for the footsteps that are actually happening above their head. But Liz is so sure that Paula's lost it that she doesn't even bother listening. She's like, girl, you're just hearing things. Everything's okay. Brian and the constable meet up in the morning and Brian had been drawing a map of how the alley is because he's trying to figure out where Greg could be going. The constable tells Brian that he saw Greg at 3 a.m. walking back home and he could see out of the street light that he was a mess, like dirty, disheveled, covered in dirt. Not like a fight, but more like he'd been digging around somewhere. And the constable's also been kicking it with Nancy and apparently she told him that Greg told her that Paula's probably going away for a long time and he wants Nancy to stay and look out for him. Now Brian feels like now he has to talk to Paula so he asked the constable to make sure that Nancy is out of the house so he can get in and talk to her when Greg goes out. Is trying to read, but she keeps hearing Greg's voice echoing in her head about her mom and the asylum, and she's not able to concentrate. She's not doing well. Brian waits until he sees Greg leaving, and he goes and knocks on the door and asks Elizabeth to let him in. Of course, she says no, but Brian is, I mean, honestly, Brian is a man, so he just kind of walks in. I, unfortunately for the time, misogyny and um, the patriarchy worked in his favor. Paula appears on the stairs. She's like halfway asking him to leave and saying that he can't be there. But you can kind of tell that she wants company in general because she hasn't had any the whole time they've been there. Brian tells her how much he admired her aunt and he pulls out the matching glove that she had given to that admirer that we talked about earlier in the film. So now it was him as a young boy. And Paula's like overwhelmed with joy and she's super excited to talk with him because she knows how much he also loved her aunt. Brian asked Paula if she had any plans to leave. She says no, but then she realizes maybe what he's asking and he's like, she's like, oh, unless my husband sends me away. Um, the gaslight goes down again and Brian notices. So Paula's over the moon that somebody else noticed this thing that's happening with this light. So she explained to Brian that the lamps do that every night after her husband leaves and they come back up right before he comes back. And she also claims she's hearing footsteps above her room and Brian, they're in the parlor. So then they go to her room and Brian can hear the footsteps as well. So he looks at her and he's like, girl, you, you, you know who that is, right? And you can see she's like kind of just realizing what's going on. And she's like, no, I can't. How? Like, how is he doing that? And so Brian tells her that Greg's been going in the alley, going into apartment number five, crossing over the roof and going into their attic. But he can't figure out why he would be doing that. Then Paula tells him that the attic is sealed off because all of her aunt's stuff is in there. 
Brian finally puts two and two together and realizes that Greg is up there every night looking for those crown jewels. We quickly cut to a clip of Greg upstairs digging through all this shit, cutting chairs open the whole nine. He's been digging up there this whole time. Downstairs, Brian asks if Greg has a gun and Paula says it's in his room in a locked desk. So Greg goes in and Jimmy's the lock on the desk and Paula's trying to protest saying she's gonna get in trouble, all this stuff. He finds the gun box with no gun inside, but while he's looking at that, Paula finds the letter from Serge's Bauer. So now she knows she's not crazy. Brian just happens to have the note that Greg sent to Lady Dalroy saying that Paula was ill from the party and the handwriting matches the note to Serge's Bauer. So Greg is Serge's Bauer and he's a young pianist that played for Alice in Prague. He also has a wife, a whole wife in Prague. And this has been his plan to get back into the house ever since he was interrupted from searching for those crown jewels when Paula ran downstairs as a little girl after her aunt was murdered. So the whole plot has been exposed right here. Now Paula is devastated because now she realizes that none of this, this whole romance, this marriage, everything, none of this has been real from the start. While they're talking about all of this and she's coming to terms with what's happening, the gas goes back up and the lamps. So Brian has to leave. But as he's leaving, he tells Elizabeth to make sure to keep her mistress in mind, first and foremost. Now Greg is getting ready to go back out the skylight entrance upstairs when he spots a dress with a bunch of costume jewelry on it. But there's some very bright stones that he realizes are what he's looking for. So now he picks the stones off and decides to just come back in through the boarded door from the attic straight back into the house. So he's not even faking it anymore. He stops by Paula's room, but she's quiet. So he goes to his office to check out these jewels. And he goes into his desk to look for something, but the desk is already open. So he realizes that the lock's been picked. He goes into Paula's room where she's just kind of sitting there. And she says she was laying down. He notices that she's fully clothed. So he's sure that like she wasn't laying down. So he calls her into the office and asks her about the lock. Now I need you to realize every time he calls her in to ask her these questions, it's like if you have a parent who calls you in to question you about something, but they're like a militant parent or someone that you know is going to snap on you. It feels like that. It doesn't feel like a lover or somebody that cares about you. It feels like a dad who's going to yell at their child. It's very, uh, it's unsettling. So he calls her into the room, asks her about the lock. She tells him that she didn't do it. He asks her if the servants did it. Of course, she's like, no, the servants didn't do it. And he's like, well, if you didn't do it, the servants didn't do it. Who did it? And she's like, oh, he did it. And of course, Gregory don't like that because he's like, he who? She's like, there was a man here while you were out who came to see me. So she says it to him in a very like matter of fact way, but you can tell that sis is in her bag. My good sis is definitely in her bag and she's trying to make him a little jealous because she know he don't like it when men look at her. So Greg calls Elizabeth over and asks who came by, but Elizabeth is like, 
Nobody was here. No man was here. So now Paula's like, wait, no, I know somebody was here. So now she thinks like, am I really going crazy? Was I dreaming? She's like on the verge of like a real breakdown. So then Greg looks at Elizabeth and is like, you see what I be talking about? This is what I be talking about. And Elizabeth looks at him like, yeah, I see what it is. Because now Elizabeth is hip to the game. But now Paula thinks she's dreamed everything and her mind is going. So she is fully ready to be taken away to an asylum. And Greg is really satisfied because he thinks his plan worked better than he thought. Until Brian appears in the doorway and asks her if she he was a part of her dream. Her eyes light up, partially because now she knows she's not crazy, and partially because I think she kind of liked this man, you know? Now, of course, Greg slash Sergis recognizes him from the tower and the party and all these other places, and he is livid. So he tells Paula, girl, go to bed. And once Brian and him start talking, and Brian reveals that he knows Greg's whole plan, he knows that he's Sergis, Greg tries to shoot him, but then drops the gun on accident and they both run up into the attic. Paula just hears a shot in the hallway and she runs out and asks for Elizabeth to call for the police. And after what sounds like a struggle in the attic a little bit, it's really quiet, but then Brian comes out and says they've restrained Greg and have him tied to a chair. She asks to go in and talk to him. Brian advises that she shouldn't, but she really wants to speak with him. Meanwhile, let me mention that when the police got called in the house, the door was open and nosy ass Miss Thwaites just sort of wandered into the house and started looking around and nobody noticed because there was so much stuff going on. So Miss Thwaites is in the house. Great. <laughs> so as soon as Paula walks in to talk to Sergis, which is what his name is, so that's what we're calling him for the rest of the movie, he starts being mad sentimental trying to convince her that all of this is just lies because Brian has been in love with her this whole time. And he's telling her like, oh, if I ever meant anything to you, please help me. There's a knife in the drawer. Like, go and get the knife and cut me loose. She goes to the drawer and he, she tells him like, there's no knife here. And he's like, yeah, there is. I put one there. And she takes the knife out of the drawer. And <laughs> she's like, oh, you mean this? This thing is a knife. It can't be a knife. And she just yeets it across the room. And then she's like, oh, but I'm always losing things and forgetting things. That was a knife, wasn't it? And now I lost it. So now I got to go look for it. Or you're going to put me in a madhouse, right? So then she starts rummaging around, pretending to look for the knife, looking in drawers. And she runs across the brooch that she, quote unquote, lost at the tower and she's like oh look my brooch that I lost at the tower but that can't help you right now can it I'm I'm mad a mad woman can't help you just like my mother right I'm mad and so then he tells her that the thing about her mother being crazy was a lie <laughs> now this is a direct quote this is one of the few direct quotes this is the only I think the only direct quote that I copied from this movie because this was so great and I felt so proud of her in this moment. She says, if I were not mad, I could have helped you. 
whatever you had done, I could have pitied and protected you. But because I'm mad, I hate you. Because I'm mad, I have betrayed you. And because I'm mad, I'm rejoicing without a shred of pity, without a shred of regret, watching you go with glory in my heart. Come, Mr. Cameron, take this man away. My good sis got her moment. I was so proud of her. I was like, yes, girl, tell him that you fucking hate him because he ain't shit. So now as he's being escorted out, Sir just stops and wants to have his moment. And he basically tells her that he can't explain what he did. He was just so obsessed with the jewels. Remember how I said at the beginning they were looking at the crown jewels of the Tower of London and he looked like he was like in love, more in love than he had ever looked at Paula in his life? Yeah, apparently he was. So he gets escorted out. And Brian and Paula end up going up to the roof. And she says, like, oh, this is going to be a long night, you know. But Brian tells her that, you know, the morning's going to come soon. And it doesn't even feel like night was there. And he basically says, I'd like to come and check on you and make sure you're good. And Paula says she liked that. But right then, nosy-ass Miss Thwaites pops onto the roof looking around and hears them talking and she's like wow with this big ass smile on her face because she know they like flirting but like in like a cute like noble way and that's how the movie ends with Mrs. Thwaites going wow and then the movie ends (laughs) so of course I have things to say but I found a perfect quote from film critic Emmanuel Levy. And I cut out a little bit of it because it kind of has some spoilers for movies that I want to cover later. But this is the main meat of the quote. It's interesting to speculate about the prominence of a film cycle in the 1940s that can be described as don't trust your husband. It began with three Hitchcock films, and I'm not going to say the names of any of these films because we may cover them. And she, They name a series of films throughout the 40s and 50s. But all of these films use the noir visual vocabulary and share the same premise in narrative structure. Sure. The life of a rich, sheltered woman is threatened by an older, deranged man often her husband. In all of them, the house, usually a symbol of sheltered security in Hollywood movies, becomes a trap of terror. I love the way this film makes me feel because I hate it. Y'all understand what I'm saying? I don't know if that makes sense. Charles Boyer has this sort of hypnotic villainy that makes you dread every conversation that they have with each other. And Ingrid Bergman's interpretation of what it's like when you feel like you're losing it, but you're trying to hold on to what little sanity you have, it's devastating watching her. Her little mannerisms, the small faces that you see her make when she's overthinking what she's going to say, overthinking whether she may be wrong. The devastation in her when she knows that she has to basically bend to her husband's will, she can't fight him because she doesn't know how to fight him. But at the same time, she's losing the will to fight because she literally thinks she's going crazy. It's 
absolutely devastating watching her. We, especially from a 2021 lens, we can see what's happening right from the beginning of the film. We see every red flag from the falling in love after two weeks to the not even letting her have a vacation by herself. We see all of these red flags from the beginning and we just keep hoping she'll realize what's happening. But even from a 1940s lens, even worse, 1910, when she's like around when this movie was based, even if she'd realized what was happening, the only reason that she was able to get out in this specific situation was because she had Detective Cameron on her side without her knowledge looking out for her. The house help certainly wasn't looking out for her, and her husband made sure to separate her from every other person in her life. So the only reason that she had help was this sort of like deus ex machina man who existed just to be able to figure out what was going on. Without him, she's stuck in that situation forever, and she can't tell anyone what's going on because she doesn't have anyone. Gaslight, the film, involved a person who made up an elaborate plot to manipulate a woman over a long period of time to get something of value. Gaslighting, as we know it today, typically involve these same tactics, but to no end. There's no jewels. There's no money. There's no plot. It's about retaining power and control over a person. Even knowing that this story probably had a happy ending because there were few sad endings at the time in the 1940s when people were making films, it was an incredibly hard and stressful film to watch. Now, if you enjoyed my retelling and it does sound a little stressful for you, I completely understand, but the film was beautifully shot. The acting is amazing. And even for a black and white film, it was like gorgeous, the cinematography. It was nominated for and won quite a few awards. It won Best Actress for Ingrid Bergman at the Academy Awards and also won for Best Art Direction for a black and white film, which, I mean, 19, I mean, I told you it's beautiful. Um, it was also nominated for Best Motion Picture. Charles Boyer was nominated for Best Actress. Angela Lansbury was nominated for Best Supporting Actress. Um, it was nominated for Best Screenplay, Best Cinematography. It also ended up winning that same year for Best... Uh, Ingrid Bergman won for Best Actress at the Golden Globes. It won um, Best Acting at the National Board of Review Awards. Um, it went into the National Film Registry for um, Preservation Board, I think in 2018. And um, it was nominated for a couple of other awards as well. So if you are interested in viewing, I watched it for free through the Roku app, but there are a few other streaming platforms that offer it for free or for rent. Um, also, if this seems a bit too familiar of a story for you or anyone that you know, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. That's 1-800-799-SAFE. You can also text START to 88788 or visit thehotline.org where they do give assistance on how to clear browser history if you feel like you're being monitored, and I do feel like that's pretty important. Um, they can also help with understanding what exactly is happening to you physically emotionally or mentally 
and um, you can also get local assistance with getting out if you need. Um, I just wanted to make sure to extend that to you because I know this is a film, but it can happen. It does happen. And we don't always have a detective Cameron looking out for us from outside of our homes. So please be safe. And really, if this feels or seems familiar to you, um, get help. Ugh. Um, well, I hate to end it on a somber note, um, but that is all the time we have here for today. Um, I really hope you enjoyed the podcast today. Next week, um, I have had a change of plans because this was um, a lot of really like psychologically exhausting films to cover. Um, I was originally going to do a Kubrick classic for next week, but we're going to move that out a week to the next week. So actually next week, we're going to be covering um, a romantic comedy with a little drama and a little cougar action. I don't know if that gives you a clue of what we're going to be talking about, but it's going to be a fun one. Um, please follow the podcast on whatever platform you use. Um, review the podcast. Hopefully you'll review it at five stars, but um, check out the Halef Pod Instagram. I usually post movie stills, fun facts. Um, be on the lookout for the website, which is coming very soon. I'm working on that as we speak. I'm hoping to get it up this week, but possibly next week, depending on my schedule, because I do work an actual um, nine to five job. <laughs> we won't go into that, but um, that will be up very soon. Follow me on Twitter at film underscore Nikki and send any collab requests, advice, movie recommendations, or general greetings to here's looking podcast at gmail.com. That's H-E-R-E-S-L-O-O-K-I-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. And once again, that Instagram is at at H-L-A-Y-F P-O-D, Halef Pod, Instagram. Uh, thanks for turning in, tuning in. <laughs> thanks for tuning in. It's a late one. I Listen, it is 1.43 in the morning. I record these things pretty late, and um, but it's the best time to record because it is quiet, and also um, it feels like I can get a little closer to you. And it's 1.43. You know what 1.43 means. I love you. Aw. Thanks for tuning in. And if I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Cheers.